Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. What happened in the 4th century? You've probably heard all kinds of rumors about Arius and his newfangled heresy, but was Arius really a sinful outsider? who tried to corrupt Christianity? Was his idea of a son with a beginning even new? In this episode, we'll cover an outline of the major events that happened in the controversy that raged from 318 to 381. You may be surprised to discover that Arius was actually an elderly conservative with an impeccable character who quite consciously worked to avoid known heresies. Here now is episode 423, part 13 of our One God class, the 4th century. Number 13, One God in the 4th century. Uh, Last time we looked at the first three centuries and we saw that there were a lot of what I call subordinationists there. People that believe there's one God overall and that Jesus is subordinate to the one God overall. Uh, So that's what I mean by a subordinationist. And tonight, I'd like to begin to look at the fourth century. This is 300 years after Christ. And begin with the statement. All Christians believed in the Trinity until a young, impetuous outsider named Arius invented a new doctrine that denied the eternality of Christ. He led a movement to deceive gullible Christians to abandon their traditional understanding in favor of his new ideas. The church held a council in 325 at Nicaea that decisively dealt with Arians. I carefully crafted this statement to maximally say the opposite of what is true. And I did that because it sounds so plausible to so many people who have studied church history I tell you, I have some really terrible church history textbooks. I do. I'm embarrassed for how, how, how much they, they are out of touch with the facts. Uh, and there are also very good his, church history books as well. But they tend to be written by outsiders, people that are not Christians or don't hold to a very conservative Christianity, and then they are freer to tell the truth about what happened. But I think times are getting better for these kinds of things. But anyhow, I wanted to show you this quote because almost everything in this quote is wrong. Almost everything. Right from the first line where it says, all Christians believed in the Trinity. I would challenge you to find one century in all of history when all Christians believed in the Trinity, including today. All Christians did not believe in the Trinity in the first century. All Christians did not believe in, actually, I could say it the other way. No Christians believed in the Trinity in the first century, the second century, or the third century. It would be really hard to find even one where you could establish that as being the case. Now, surely in the 4th century, we have Trinitarian Christians, at least by about the middle of the century. But even then, they seem really confused about a lot of really core beliefs. So that's a false statement. The idea that Arius is a young, impetuous outsider, totally false. Arius was old, he was conservative, and he was an insider. He wasn't an outsider. He was accepted within the church. 
and the idea that he went around trying to deceive gullible Christians to abandon their traditional understanding, that's, that's also false. That's not what he was, he was just fighting for himself. He had been kicked out of his church, as we'll see in a, in a few minutes, and he's just fighting to get reinstated. He's not fighting to start a new denomination or a new religion. This idea that the Son is eternal, just like the Father is eternal, that is not a traditional idea. I could find maybe one or two people who believe that in the third century. Certainly Origen of Alexandria, but there's not much, at least not clearly. And then this idea that says the church held a council in 325 at Nicaea, that's all true, that decisively dealt with the Arians. Well, that's not true. No, it didn't, it didn't deal with the problem. It didn't, Arius is not some external infector that came into the body of Christ and then the little white blood cells fought it off and then he's in this council defeated. No, 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 that's not it at all. Arius is an insider and he's a conservative and he is not innovating. I mean, he does innovate in some ways, but he, his big point is not an innovation. So I would argue that that statement is a myth. A myth is just a story you tell that doesn't even have to be true. It's not history. It's a myth. So let's talk about Arius. Arius of Alexandria was born around 260, and he died in 336. The controversy begins in the year 318. Uh, he's about 62 years old at that point. And by the time the Council of Nicaea happens, he's 70 years old. He's from Libya in Africa, and he's ordained a pastor, or as they would call it in their time, a presbyter, the same idea as a pastor, of one of the oldest churches in all of Alexandria. Alexandria is the city in Egypt. It's a supreme metropolis, lots of immigrants, lots of languages, lots of people groups. It's ruled over by the Roman Empire, but there are a lot of Greek-speaking, almost all Greek-speaking, and then you have Egyptians, native Egyptians that speak a language called Coptic, and then uh, just all kinds of learning, philosophers, Christians, pagans, Jews, everything in Alexandria. And that's where Arius is serving as a pastor in one of the oldest churches in that city. He was austere, he was serious, he dressed simply, and I love this quote by Alvin Lamson. He says, His adversaries, Arius's adversaries, such as the virulence of theological prejudice, denounce his doctrines as blasphemous, and there is no epithet of abuse they do not heap upon him, except only that they accuse him of no immorality, no whisper of impurity of life has come down to us from the many enemies of his name and fame, a sure proof that no stain rested on his character. So you imagine that, this whole controversy, as you'll see in a minute, it just raged decade after decade. Hundreds, if not thousands, maybe even millions of people were aware of it, had opinions about it, either loved or hated Arius. And nobody in all of that writing said Arius was a liar, said Arius uh, was loose in his morals. So that tells me that he must have been a pretty upright guy as far as his ethics, as far as his behavior was concerned. All right, let's move on to the controversy. I've broken the controversy, the initial stages of it, into 12 points. Are you ready? 12 points. And 
The first one is all about Alexander. Alexander is the bishop. A bishop is the overseer of all the churches. Okay, so it's the same as the word overseer in the Bible. So you have, in Alexandria, you have Alexander of Alexandria, and he's at the top. And then you have all these presbyters and even other bishops that are underneath him, because he's more more like an archbishop is what we would term it today. So he began teaching that the son was eternal at a pastor's conference. So often this, this little point is left out of people doing histories about Arius. They don't talk about this incident. But this was really the first shot fired. Okay, People say, oh, Arius started teaching that the, the Son of God had a beginning. Yes, that's true. Because at a pastor's conference he attended, his leader, his supervisor, started teaching Jesus didn't have a beginning. And so Arius was reacting against that. So the first shot was fired by Alexander of Alexandria, as far as I can reconstruct it. And I base that on this quotation from the church historian Socrates, not the philosopher, but a guy named after the philosopher centuries and centuries later named Socrates. He says the following, Alexander, he, in the fearless exercise of his functions for the instruction and government of the church, attempted one day in the presence of the presbytery and the rest of the clergy to explain with perhaps too philosophical minuteness that great theological mystery, the unity of the Holy Trinity. A certain one of the presbyters under his jurisdiction, whose name was Arius, possessed of no inconsiderable logical acumen, imagining that the bishop was subtly teaching the same view of this subject as Sibelius, the Libyan, took the opposite opinion to that of the Libyan, and as he thought, vigorously responded to what was said by the bishop, if, said he, this is Arius, the father begat the son, he that was begotten had a beginning of his existence. This is kind of Arius's main point. And he just repeats that a thousand different ways. I'm going to quote from him a couple of times so you get a real flavor for it. But that's about as simple as it is. If Jesus was begotten, then Jesus has a beginning. Or not, let's not say Jesus. Jesus is talking about the human. They believe in the preexistence, these people that are having this discussion. So if the son, before he became a human, has a beginning before he became a human, so the beginning of the spiritual being, the son, then that spiritual being must have a beginning if it was begotten. From this, it is evident that there was a time when the son was not. That's like the main slogan, as we'll see. It therefore necessarily follows that he had his substance from nothing. Okay, let me go back here. Now, what we have happening is Alexander of Alexandria, he's got his presbyters and his clergy. That's why I say it's a pastor's conference. That's what a pastor's conference is, where you get all the presbyters and the clergy and you get them together and you try to give them some instruction or have some meetings together. And it says that perhaps with too much philosophical minuteness, he went into the great theological mystery, the unity of the Holy Trinity. Now, this term of Trinity He's looking back on it some decades later, and he's saying, oh yeah, he was just trying to explain the Trinity. I don't think Alexander would have necessarily described it that way, or necessarily used the Trinity word as what we find it is being defined as later, once we get these councils. Just a little point there. Now, Arius, you notice here, Socrates is very careful to say nothing good about Arius, 
But, in the, in the, but he can't deny the fact that Arius has no inconsiderable logical acumen. So, like, he's pretty smart, <laughs> in other words. He thinks Arius, according to Socrates here, Arius thinks that his bishop sounds like Sibelius. Now, I covered Sibelius last time amidst a million other names, so I'll just remind you who Sibelius was and what he taught. Sibelius was a Christian in the 3rd century who taught that the son was the father, that there was no difference between the two as far as their nature or their essence or their substance. They are of the same substance, because they are the, and they are the same individual, the same self as well. And so Arius is hearing his bishop, and he's like, you know, I'm a Libyan. I know this Sibelius was a Libyan. Like, I studied his beliefs, and, you know, I know we don't believe that. It sounds like he's falling into this. Let me see what I can do to come against it. All right, so that's step one, was this pastor's conference with Alexander teaches the Son is eternal. Step two, in reaction, Presbyter Arius began teaching in his own church, there was a time when he was not. When word came to Alexander, he held a council so both sides could debate the issue. Number four, in 318, that's A.D. or C.E. if you're Gen Z, uh, in 318, Alexander sided with those who argued for an eternal son and excommunicated Arius. Okay, so you see how things are heating up. First, Arius starts teaching what he believes in his own church. Then they pull him in and have him debate. And it says that even during the debate, Alexander was going one way and then going the other way. And then eventually he just decided on the side that said the son is eternal. And from that point forward, he said, Arius, you have to, you have to change your belief on this. Arius said no. And so he had another council where he called everyone together and he said, Arius, you're fired. And you're excommunicated. And I don't even want you in my city of Alexandria. Surprisingly, when that happened, 89 other people left with Arius, including seven other presbyters and 12 other deacons. So, he, like I said, Arius is an insider. He's not some outsider that came up with some new idea, or else he wouldn't have had that many people leaving with him. All right, then what happened? Well, Arius didn't have too many options, did he? The biggest Christian authority in his city is telling everyone that he's a heretic and he's not allowed to come to church and has fired him. So what does he do? He reaches out to other bishops that are also very powerful in other parts of the empire and asks them, can you please talk to my bishop? Can you please reason with him? Can you please get me reinstated? So Arius wrote to influential bishops outside his area asking for help. Then, several bishops, led by Eusebius of Nicomedia, backed Arius and asked Alexander to, to allow Arius to return. Then, Alexander wrote letters to many bishops slandering Arius, his beliefs, and those who hold them. So it's so a letter war at this point. Arius is writing his letters out. He's like, oh, my bishop kicked me out. I'm, I'm suffering. You know, can you help me? And then uh, there's Alexander saying to all the diff different bishops that he knows all throughout the empire, Arius is no good. He's, he's a spawn of Satan. Don't listen to anything he says. He's pure evil. I mean, this is really the tone that Alexander uses. We have some of his letters preserved. We can read them today. Then number eight, in 321, we have the council in Bithynia. 
which is held by Eusebius of Nicomedia. And this council found in favor of Arius. It's a council of a bunch of bishops get together. They consider the issue. They say, we think you're right, Arius, and we demand Alexander welcome you back. Well, Alexander, in response, had his own council in Alexandria and reaffirmed his condemnation of Arius over against the 321 council. And then the emperor gets word of what's going on, that there's this controversy. Christians aren't sure and Constantine I, Constantine the Great, that's the emperor at this time, he's not even really a Christian. I mean, he's favoring Christianity, but he's not baptized yet. He's, he sort of holds that off until his deathbed so that he can sin as much as he wants to. And then he'll, just before he dies, he'll get baptized. Uh, we'll, we'll see how that strategy works out in the Day of Judgment. But anyhow, so he's, he's calling all these Christians together, and he's like, guys, like, I'm trying to favor you. You don't even agree on you know, the age of the Son of God. Like, come on. Like, is he eternal or is he not eternal? And so he has this advisor named Osius of Cordova, a Spanish bishop, and he sends him down there to Egypt, and he says to Osius, figure this thing out. So Osius comes down to Egypt, and who do you think he's going to side with? A bishop like Alexander in charge of all the churches or some lowly pastor that has, like, a couple of people supporting him way outside the area? He sides with the big bishop, what would later be called a uh, patriarch or even a pope. They would call him a pope, even though it's not of Rome, it's of Alexandria at this time. You'll see in a second. And so Osius comes down and uh, in 324 has a council in Alexandria and finds in favor of Alexander. And then in 325, on his way back home, he stops in Antioch and he has a forced council there on the authority of the emperor, and in this council in 325, they condemned Arius in Antioch, and everyone who agreed with Arius, and they excommunicated Theodotus of Laodicea, Narcissus of Neronius, and Eusebius of Caesarea. So three other bishops get excommunicated in the 325 council at Antioch, and they publish a creed affirming that the Son is eternal. And then finally, you get the very famous council, the one everyone knows about, the 325 council, same year, in uh, Nicaea. It's a different city. And at Nicaea, the emperor himself comes and sits there in all his glittering robes and his gems and jewels, and he presides. He's not even really a Christian. He presides over what Christians are going to believe for the next 16 centuries. Unbelievable. 17 centuries, almost. So let's talk about Arius's theology a little bit, just because this is important to come to grips with a little bit in light of all the, the politics and everything. What, what was this guy actually teaching? I mean, was he the spawn of Satan? Because I mean, maybe he was. You know, let's look at what his beliefs were. Um, everyone apart from Sibelius and modalists like him, prior to Arius, believed that the son is subordinate to the father. Pretty much everybody. Okay. They had the idea, and we saw this with Theophilus of Antioch, that God had his own logos, his own reason, his own word within himself, internal. Actually, he talks about it being in his bowels. And Theophilus talks about how God like emitted his word, and you know, what we what we do with a word is we speak a word, right? Isn't that what we do? So he speaks his word out, and somehow then it becomes an external individual, an external self 
that has its own consciousness and everything. And then that word is what then, in fact, creates the heavens and the earth. And then continues on living and then eventually becomes a human being in Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, so that's kind of the idea that a lot of these Logos theologians had. And they started to use the idea of word and son interchangeably. And so once the word is a son, you have to ask the question, well, all right, if the word of God prior to Jesus is the son of God, how did the son of God become the son of God? He had to be begotten. So now we have two beginnings. We have the beginning before time began, in the creation of the universe, the first beginning, and then a second beginning in the womb of Mary. So we have two beginnings, one before time and one in time. So that's how they're thinking about things. And uh, they didn't really like to think too much about how that worked. Irenaeus wrote, If anyone therefore says to us, How then, and this is about 180, so second century, How then was the Son produced by the Father? We reply to him, that no man understands that production of generation. Nobody understands that, buddy. Or calling, or revelation, or whatever name one may describe his generation, which is, in fact, altogether indescribable. Yeah, nobody understands it. It's indescribable. We're not going to go there. We're not going to talk about it. So that's kind of the attitude a lot of people have. And Alexander is saying, well, he wasn't begotten in time, he was eternal. And Arius hears that and he's just like, look, buddy, if he's begotten, he's not eternal. It's one or the other. Because beginning is a process that has a cause and effect. You know, like lifting. If I lift this pen, that's a cause and an effect. So there was a time before it was lifted, right? And now it's lifted. So that's just the way these kinds of verbs work. So what happened next? Well, Arius uh, began teaching, working out the logical implications of beginning very narrowly. He very, you know, concretely figured it out in this poem called the Thalia. And uh, the Thalia sadly doesn't survive in writing, except for, as quoted by Arius's greatest enemy, Athanasius. So Athanasius preserves it just to argue with it. But thankfully for that, we actually have some insight into what Arius believed. That also goes for the other letter that I'm going to show you in a minute. So this is what Arius believed. He said, God then himself is in essence ineffable to all. He alone has neither equal nor like. None comparable in glory. What does that sound like to you? One God overall, right? Oh, sorry, I just couldn't resist it. Uh, we call him unbegotten, talking about the Father, because of the one in nature begotten. We raise hymns to him as unbegun because of him who has a beginning. We adore him as eternal because of the one born in time. The unbegun appointed the Son to be beginning of things begotten and bore him as his own Son, in this case giving birth. He has nothing proper to God in his essential property, for neither is he equal nor yet consubstantial with him. This is kind of a key word. It's a word associated with Sibelius, this idea that he's of the same substance, he's the same as the father. And Arius is saying, no, he's not. And then in another letter that we have preserved of Arius, he talks to 
his superior. He writes to, he, he goes to these other guys to ask for help. And they say to him, you know what, Arius? You just need to write a really nice letter. Write a, write a nice letter to your bishop. Because if I got a letter from one of my presbyters and he was so, that would just clarify. So they, they have him send this letter to his, it totally doesn't work. But this is the letter that he sent. To our blessed Pope and Bishop Alexander. And this has nothing to do with the Pope of Rome. This is a Pope of Alexandria. There, this is kind of before Rome was the full Roman Catholic Church. Anyhow, to our blessed Pope and Bishop Alexander, the presbyters and deacons and health in the Lord. Our faith from our forefathers, which also we have learned from the blessed Pope, is this. We acknowledge one God, alone, ingenerate, alone, everlasting, alone, unbegun, alone, true, alone, having immortality, and I skipped some stuff, who begat an only begotten Son before eternal times, through whom he has made both the ages and the universe, and begot him, not in semblance, but in truth, and that he made him subsist of his own will, unalterable, unchangeable, perfect creature of God, but not as one of the creature's offspring, but not as one of the things begotten, nor as Valentinus proposed, so now what Arius does in this letter is he's, he's describing to his bishop what he believes. And he's doing it over against all these heretics. Okay, So anybody in the world at that time, in Christianity, in, well, at least in the mainstream of Christianity, would have recognized these names, Valentinus, uh, Manichaeus, Sibelius, and Hierarchus as people that you don't want to be associated with. As heretics, like, ooh, don't want to believe anything they believe, right? So here's Arius, who gets labeled later on as the arch-heretic, the worst heretic of all time. If you ask people today, that's what they say about Arius. And here's, here's Arius saying, I'm trying to avoid all of these heresies, Alexander. I'm just trying to, to repeat what I've learned from you and what we've already, already always believed. Anyhow, let me just read it. He says, Nor has Valentinus pronounced that the offspring of the father was an issue, nor as Manichaeus taught that the offspring was a portion of the father, one in essence. Or, as Sibelius, dividing the monad, speaks of a son and father. Nor, as Hierarchus, of one torch from another, or as a lamp, divided into two. Nor that he who was before was afterwards generated or new created into a son, as thou too thyself, blessed Pope, in the midst of the church and in the session hast often condemned." But as we say, at the will of God, created before times and before ages, and gaining life and being from the Father who, gives, who gave subsistence to his glories together with him. For the Father did not, in giving to him the inheritance of all things, deprive himself of what he has ingenerately in himself, for he is the fountain of all things. Thus, there are three subsistences. And God, being the cause of all things, is unbegun, altogether soul. But the Son being begotten apart from time by the Father and being created and founded before ages was not before his generation. And he goes on from there. It's actually kind of a lengthy letter. Arius ends up with these slogans. There are three uh, key slogans that Arius is famous for. One is, he was made from what was not. So the idea is that nothing existed except for the Father, except for the monad. He wasn't a father yet because he didn't have a son. So they just call him the monad or they call him God. And then when he brings the son into existence through his process of begetting, whatever that means, 
Now the sun exists. So he's brought into existence from nothing. It's not made from created stuff. He's just generated out of nothing. Arius' opponents find this incredibly offensive. They want him to say he was generated from the Father. And Arius is saying he's generated from nothing. And he, and he tones this down later on because he, he uh, kind of thinks it through a little bit more, I think. The second slogan is, he was not before he was born. So before he was born, he was not. And then the other one was, there was when he was not. So there was a time when the sun did not yet exist. And these slogans became very, very popular. Which brings us finally to the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea occurred in 325. There are at least 200 bishops there. It's hard to say. We have three or four different reportings of numbers. Uh, anywhere from 200 to 318 bishops. Five were from the West. <laughs> so, the vast majority were Eastern Greek-speaking bishops. There were only five represented from the Latin West. So, this was mo most definitely an Eastern council, not really an ecumenical council, which it gets labeled as later. Arius, of course, was not allowed to speak at the Council of Nicaea because he's not a bishop. Only bishops are allowed to speak. But there were other bishops that agreed with Arius in, the, in his Logos Christology that you know, the, the son didn't exist, and then he, he was begotten, and then he did exist, especially Eusebius of Caesarea. There were lots of bishops on different sides, actually, but Constantine was the big, the big show there. Here you have all these Christians who were persecuted from the year 303 to 313 by the guy before Constantine, Diocletian, this severe, we call it the Great Persecution, 303 to 313, 10-year persecution, and now it's 325. It's only 12 years later. You think they're going to upset the new emperor that like stopped at all the persecutions from happening? I don't think so. So uh, allegedly, Constantine supplies this word, homoousion, or homoousios, depending on if it's the subject or the object of the verb. It's Greek, okay? Don't, don't stress out about it. But homoousion or homoousios, it means of the same essence or of the same substance. And Constantine says, let's use this word. Allegedly. And so they put that word into the council, and we get the following creed. We believe in one God, the Father, Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten of his Father. Hey, it's pretty good so far, right? You've got one God. Who's the one God? Well, it's the Father. This is a Unitarian creed. Well, until we get to the next line. Of the substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance, homoousion, with the Father, by whom all things were made, both which be in heaven and in earth, and for us, who for us and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered and the third day rose again and ascended into heaven. And he shall come again to judge both the quick and the dead. So that's, that's kind of the end of the creed right there. And you can see uh, that this being of the same substance, that's the part that Constantine suggested, uh, that the son is of the same substance as the father. And so this creed can actually be interpreted in at least three different ways. It could be interpreted as a subordinationist creed because Jesus is not God in and of himself. He's God from God. 
And the Greek is a little more ambiguous than the English here. But he's a God who came from the other God. He's not God from the start of it. But he's of the same substance, the same stuff, same nature. But he could be of a lower rank very easily. Or this could be taken as a Sabellian creed, where it's saying that the, the, the Son just is the Father, right? Uh, because they're of the same substance, after all. I mean, what's the difference? And uh, it can also be taken in what will eventually become the Trinitarian sense, two persons. Notice the word person is not here. Like, that terminology is just not worked out yet, not till later. All right, and then the creed ends with the following. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. doesn't say anything about what the Holy Spirit is. Just, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. And whoever shall say, these are called anathemas, and whoever shall say that there was a time when the Son of God was not, or that before he was begotten he was not, or that he was made of all things that were not, or that he is of a different substance or essence, or that he is a creature or subject to change or conversion, all that so say the Catholic and Apostolic Church anathematizes them. So they quote all of Arius' little slogans and say, if you even say these things, you're cursed by the church. This is a remarkable shift in Christianity. Now we've got the political power, a secular leader involved, not that he wasn't religious, he was religious, but he wasn't really fully a Christian yet. He's involved, and now Christians are both trying to use the political power to defeat their theological enemies. And this begins a whole period of chaos, controversy, and fighting. There's a man named Gregory of Nyssa who wrote in the middle of the 4th century, he wrote and he said, For the whole city, Constantinople, has been filled with such as these, the alleys, the marketplaces, the streets, the apartments, the sellers of garments, those who have set up tables, those who are selling cooked food. If you may ask for change, one philosophizes to you concerning a begotten and unbegotten. And if you might inquire concerning the cost of bread, one answers, the Father is greater and the Son is in subjection. And if you might ask, is both, is the bath prepared? One says, the sun is not separated from nothing. So these theological controversies were in the common people's thinking, and they were arguing it out just like on the street, because like everyone was into it. Everyone was curious. Everyone was passionate. And so this controversy goes, it really starts in the year 318 with this eruption between Arius and Alexander, and it goes all the way to the year 381. So it's 60 years of controversy, and it was all led on the egalitarian side, if I can call it that, of the son equal to the father, by Athanasius, because Alexander actually dies fairly soon after Nicaea. Alexander dies, and he's succeeded by Athanasius, and Athanasius is a pit bull. He is just a fierce, uh, just no-holds-barred, Go at him strong, never let up, no matter what, fighter. He relentlessly fought to force others to accept the Nicene Creed. And from his writings, you get this sense of his mean-spirited character. Uh, There were multiple councils called against Athanasius for his bad behavior. He was exiled repeatedly and banished from the empire over and over again. And he was found guilty and he was excommunicated. There was actually a period of 20 years where nobody would even talk to him from 335 to 355 among the Eastern bishops because of all the bad things he had done. 
In his book, R.P.C. Hansen has a whole chapter called The Behavior of Athanasius. If you want to read the dirt on him, I recommend you go there. He documents Athanasius lying, slandering, misrepresenting, omitting, changing the words of others, employing thugs to rough up other pastors. Like there's just the sky's the limit with this guy. So he was really fighting hard for this, what he believed to be the truth of the father's equality to the son. There were all these councils in the 4th century. My goodness, you think 325 settled it? Give me a break. I count 88 councils between 325 and 381 when it was finally settled. That's 1.57 councils per year for 56 years. It's just incredible how many of these councils occurred during this period most of which were dealing with this question of, should we agree with Athanasius or should we agree with Arius? Is the father equal to the son? Is the son, or does the son have a beginning? A lot of them found in favor of Arius, you might be surprised to know. A lot of them found in favor of Athanasius. Some of them stayed in the middle, and they were called semi-Arian councils, where they, they took a middle position. Others couldn't decide on anything, and they you know, basically ended in stalemate. And then, of course, the emperors got involved. Constantine died, right? Well, Constantine, in the beginning, favored Alexander and Athanasius, that side. But then later on, he kicked Athanasius out and agreed with Arius. He totally switched sides. And then Constantine II supported Athanasius, switched back. And then Constantius supported the semi-Arian position. Then Constans supported Athanasius. Then Valentinian supported Athanasius. Then Valens supported the semi-Arian position. And then finally Theodosius supported Athanasius. And the pendulum swings back and forth and finally ends on Athanasius when Theodosius, the emperor, makes it a law. I just want to show you this account. This is a creed from the year 357. So right about in the middle of the controversy. This is the creed from the council held at Sirmium. And this is what they said. There is no question, you're going to love this. There is no question that the Father is greater. No one can doubt that the Father is greater than the Son in honor, dignity, splendor, majesty, and in the very name of Father, as the Son himself testifies. He who sent me is greater than I. And no one is ignorant that it is Catholic doctrine that there are two persons of Father and Son, and that the Father is greater, and that the Son is subordinated to the Father, together with all things which the Father has subjected to him, the Son, that the Father has no beginning and is invisible, immortal, impassable, but that the Son has been begotten from the Father. Look, if the pendulum stopped swinging in the year 356, guess what? The Roman Empire would have had an Arian creed. RPC Hansen, in his magisterial history book of the period, just covers the years 318 to 381, he writes the following. He says, Another point to realize about the period is that it was not a history of the defense of an agreed and settled orthodoxy against the assaults of open heresy. On the subject, which was primarily under discussion, there was not yet an orthodox doctrine. The accounts of what happened, which have come down to us, were mostly written by those who belonged to the school of thought, which eventually prevailed and have been deeply colored by the fact. 
The supporters of the view wanted their readers to think that orthodoxy on the subject under discussion had always existed and that the period was simply a story of defense of that orthodoxy against heresy and error. But it ought to be obvious that this could not possibly have been the case. If the solution to the problem was clear from the start, why did the controversy last 60 years? Why did it involve several successive Roman emperors and entail the holding of at least 20 councils? Why the polemical treatises, deposition of bishops of all opinions, riots, antagonism of parties, numerous creeds, division between Latin-speaking Westerners and Greek-speaking Easterners? The defense of well-established and well-known orthodoxy could not possibly account for such widespread and long-lasting disturbances. Both sides, indeed all sides, for there were more than two, appealed confidently to tradition to support them. With the exception of Athanasius, this is, this is the best part, virtually every theologian, East and West, accepted some form of subordinationism at least up to the year 355. Subordinationism might indeed, until the denouement of the controversy, have been described as accepted orthodoxy. Subordinationism, once again, is the idea that there's one God overall and that Jesus is his subordinate son. Hello. So where is one God overall in the fourth century? Everywhere. <laughs> on one side and nowhere on the other side. Joseph Lynch describes the period of time. He says, when modern readers are introduced to the theological debates of the fourth and fifth centuries, we're not getting into the fifth century tonight, they are sometimes shocked by the atmosphere in which they took place. Those debates were not carried out by calm scholars sitting in their manuscript-lined studies. From one perspective, the story is one of misunderstandings, vicious personal attacks, distortions, violence, bribes, mutual excommunication, intervention by emperors, and the deposition and exile of bishops and others who lost in the struggle. From another perspective, the story is one of theological creativity, that has shaped Christian beliefs for about 15 centuries. Hello? Theological creativity? I'm sorry, but I don't want theological creativity. I want, I want what Jesus had. I want what the apostles taught. I don't want some fancy, philosophizing, creative, speculative theology, the newest, the, the shiniest idea. Out. No, I don't want any of that. Just give me the Bible. Give me, give me back to the original. And yet, that's indeed what was going on. All right, I've got to wind things down here. But I did want to mention Photinus of Galatia. Photinus was the bishop of Sirmium. Photinus disagreed with Arius, and he disagreed with Athanasius. Photinus was a dynamic monarchian. He believed that the son was the Messiah, but he did not pre-exist. And he lived in, or well, he was bishop of Sirmium, the very city that I just read you the creed from, in the 340s and then again in the 360s. He agreed with Paul of Samosata, somebody I mentioned last time, who had lived a century before. And he claims that Christ, according to Epiphanius, does not exist from the beginning, but is from Mary's time, since the Holy Spirit came upon her. Uh, and so Photinus is there in the mix of this whole period, and I just wanted to mention him. He was bishop, and then he was exiled, then he was bishop again, then he was exiled again. You know, it's just a crazy time. A lot of people uh, got sucked into the controversy. So uh, I wish I could say more about Photinus. I'll mention the Photinians as the people that agreed with him and followed his 
beliefs about Jesus uh, next time. All right, so how do we conclude? Well, conclusion is pretty simple. It involves a guy named Theodosius. Theodosius I, the Roman emperor, came to power, and he was tutored by a Christian by the name of Ambrose of Milan. Ambrose of Milan also tutored Augustine. If you ever heard of Augustine, then he, to a large degree, was a convert and a, somebody that he tutored as well in Christianity. And so Theodosius received from Ambrose uh, the idea that Arians and subordination was evil and that as the Roman emperor, it was his responsibility to fight the good fight and to carry the torch of Athanasius into the late 4th century and to really rid the empire of anyone that does not agree with Nicaea. The idea that the Father and the Son are of the same substance. And so he puts out the following law, Theodosius, in the year 380. He says, We believe in the single deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, in the 380s, now we have the Holy Spirit in the mix. It wasn't really there in 325. The Creed of 381, which will be a year after this, has the Holy Spirit fully installed in the Trinity. So now you have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one, you know, three and one and all. The, now you have that very clearly in the creed of 381. Anyhow, this is what Theodosius says. We believe in the single deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit under the concept of equal majesty of the Holy Trinity. We command that those persons who follow this rule embrace the name of Catholic Christians. The rest, however, whom we judge demented, insane, and shall sustain the infamy of heretical dogmas. Their meeting places shall not receive the name of churches, and they shall be smitten, first by divine vengeance, and second by retribution of our own initiative, which we shall assume in accordance with divine judgment. Whew! And he's the guy making the laws. <laughs> so, in the end, the Roman Empire agreed with Nicaea, with Alexander, with Athanasius, and They developed the theology to bring in the Holy Spirit as well, which we don't really have time to get into. So let's review. Number one, in the early 4th century, Alexander, Athanasius, and others began teaching the Father and Son are co-eternal and co-equal. Arius, number two, Arius, Eusebius, and others rejected the Son's eternity because he was begotten and thus had a beginning. Number three, in 325, Constantine called the Council of Nicaea, which produced a new creed saying the Father and Son were of the same substance. Number four, Nicaea did not settle the matter. Christians battled from 318 to 381 over whether the Son was eternal. Number five, Logos incarnationists like Eusebius and dynamic monarchians like Photinus fought back but lost to the Nicenes led by Athanasius. Number six, in 381, Emperor Theodosius called the Council of Constantinople, which produced a new creed in agreement with Nicaea while also including the Holy Spirit. The fourth century is not a cheery time. It doesn't matter what side of it you're on. It's a time where Christians fought with other Christians. And it's a time before which Christians who shared different views on this subject could sit together in fellowship with each other and worship together, and not hate each other. And after which, that was impossible. After these laws came down, if you weren't 
orthodox, if you didn't have the right opinion, that's what orthodox means, then you were to be cast out of the church. So it's not a cherry subject, but it's all part of the story. <laughs> so next time we'll review what we've learned in this class and fill in some more history and ask the question, well, what can we do today in our continuing effort to learn about our one God overall? Well, that brings this episode to a close. We have one more in this series on one God overall, and I am very much looking forward to that one. In the meanwhile, what did you think about this survey I presented of the fourth century? Did I leave anything out? Was there something that I should correct? Come on over to restitutio.org, find episode 423, the fourth century, and leave your feedback. Would so appreciate that. Also, as the year is coming to an end, I am going to be putting out a post on restitutio.org, probably in a, a week or two, listing out our top 10 episodes for the year. But uh, before I even get that data all worked out, I did want to mention that I found uh, what I think is the number one episode of the year. Uh, so this is subject to correction, but I think it's, it is a tentative conclusion that John Truitt's episode 375, Gifts of the Spirit Are Available Today, which was way back from January 21st of 2021, had the most downloads of all the episodes this year. So just want to say congratulations, John Truitt, pretty closely followed by Greg Dibel, who took an opposing position on an episode titled Tongues Have Ceased on uh, January 28th. So if you are interested in Gifts of Spirit or Tongues, go take a look at those episodes because they each presented their own side and then they went into conversation with each other before Victor Gluckin, Carlos Jimenez, and Kevin Gigu joined the mix. So go ahead and listen to to that series on the Gifts of Spirit if you haven't already. Also on Facebook, I did launch a poll a couple of weeks ago on what sorts of series or individual episodes, topics, interviewees you recommended for 2022. And I did get a bunch of feedback on that. If you are not in the Restitutio Facebook group, come on over there because a lot of the conversation that happens occurs in that group, Uh, not on the website, although some happens on the website as well. And I just want to encourage you to Have your voice be heard there if there is a topic that you have in mind because I am going to be planning out future episodes for Restitutio and I need to know what the people are interested in. I know what I'm interested in, but I'm also curious what the people, the people who listen, who are engaged, who are part of this community dedicated to restoring authentic Christianity and living it out today. What are you curious about? So if you haven't yet, please make your voice heard on that Facebook group poll and we'll catch you next week. Thanks, everyone. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that at restitutio.org. We'll see you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.